Well, the last song we sang was Songs in the Night, and if it had been written in Joseph's time, it might have been one of his favorite songs. He certainly had a lot of night seasons, and clearly in Joseph's response to those trials that he went through, we see that he did have a song, a song of praise, and we'll see that more clearly as we pick up in chapter 40 of the book of Genesis, where Last week we left Joseph in the king's prison, and now we're going to look at uh, a few of the experiences that he had there while he was in the prison. So we'll read verses 1 through 23 of Genesis chapter 40. Genesis chapter 40 and verses 1 through 23. It came to pass after these things that the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief butler and the chief baker. So he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison, the place where Joseph was confined. Notice the description there. Joseph, though he had risen to a place of privilege and authority in the prison, he's still confined. He's still a prisoner. Verse 4. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he served them. So they were in custody for a while. Then the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, had a dream, both of them, each man's dream in one night, and each man's dream with its own interpretation. And Joseph came into them in the morning and looked at them and saw that they were sad. This is something that I find interesting. We'll look at it in a little bit. But he looks at these prisoners and he says, you look sad. Verse 7. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in the custody of his Lord's house, saying, why do you look so sad today? And they said to him, we each have had a dream and there is no interpreter of it. So Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please. Notice, Joseph clearly has not given up on the dream that God gave him, the vision, the revelation, because he still has confidence that God is going to do what he said he would do. And now he's pointing others to that same faithful God. Then the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, Behold, in my dream, a vine was before me, and in the vine were three branches, and it was as though it budded. Its blossoms shot forth, and its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. Then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Now within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. But remember me when it is well with you, and please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh, and get me out of this house. So, again, clearly, though Joseph's attitude is what it ought to be, this is still not a place he wants to be in. And so it's not a luxury motel. It's a prison. Verse 15, For indeed I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, And also I have done nothing here that they should put me into the dungeon. 
When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good, he said to Joseph, I also was in my dream, and there were three white baskets on my head. In the uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, and the birds ate them out of the basket on my head. So Joseph answered and said, This is the interpretation of it. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh from you. Now it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. Then he restored the chief butler to his butlership again, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. We're never told exactly why these two men were thrown into prison, the king's prison, except for the fact that Pharaoh was angry with them. And we're not told whether that anger was justified or not. It could have been as simple as a, a glance that Pharaoh didn't like, or it could have been out and out treason. But whatever the case, the emphasis is not so much on these two individuals as it is on how Joseph reacted to them and his attitude in, in this situation. Now, when you talk about a, a butler and a baker in the king's prison, that might sound insignificant. But these two men had a closeness to the pharaoh, to the king, that they were heavily vetted. And they were in a place where they had to be trusted because of their closeness to the king. They could have easily assassinated the king, especially in those two positions. And so these, being the king's butler and baker, it's more than just being a butler and a, and a baker. We don't know why one was pardoned and one was, was killed. But the lessons that we can learn are found in verses 6 and 7. The first lesson that we can learn, there's several lessons here, but if you want to glance back to what we read there in verses 6 and 7, where Joseph asked these two prisoners, why are you sad today? Now, if we were in that position and we've been in many positions that are uncomfortable and unpleasant for us, and it's hard to think about or be concerned about someone else's problems when you are suffering such great problems yourself. But in Joseph's response here, we see how Christ wants us to respond in, in our trials, is not to forget to be sensitive to those around us. And the question to me is, is quite odd, why wouldn't they look sad? <laughs> They're in prison. Why wouldn't Joseph be sad? They're in prison. But he noticed that there was something different about them, and they were evidently more sullen than, than normal. And so he asked them. He, he didn't have to ask them. He could just, whatever, however it was, he had to serve their needs, whether he just brought the food or took care of their laundry or whatever it was. He could have just done his job been responsible and done what he was supposed to and walked away. But there was a genuine caring for someone else, even in the midst of his own injustices and his own suffering. This is something that we find in Scripture for us. Galatians 5, verses 13 to 15. This is a virtue, a trait that the Lord is looking for in us. When we are suffering, 
in the midst of our own trials, we need to be sensitive to those around us. And the only way that you can really do do that is to, to know that your heavenly Father has committed himself to take care of you, to fulfill his word, his promises to you. And if you really believe that, that the Almighty God, your heavenly Father, has promised to take care of your every need, spirit, soul, and body, so that you can have God's best in this life and in eternity, if you really believe that, then that frees you up to think about others and what they need to encourage them and to bring them into the joy of the Lord. In Galatians 5.13, the Apostle Paul wrote, he said, For you, brethren, you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So the flesh is nothing but selfishness. Love seeks the well-being of others. The flesh and love are opposite. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Then we can read, of course, in 1 Corinthians 13, let's remind ourselves of what divine love really is and how unselfish it is, how it's always thinking of others. And when I say others, first of all, thinking of God, what pleases God what pleases our Lord. But then because of our, our desire to please him, then we also begin to look to the needs of others, that we become a channel of that very love of God. First Corinthians 13, verse 1. Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Sounds to me like love is a pretty important virtue that God's looking for in us. These other things that he mentioned, they're also good. They're also of value. But love needs to be what motivates everything we do in life. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. There's no eternal value to having any other motive for what you do than your love for God and your love for others. Here's a description of divine love. Love suffers long. Joseph suffered a long time, didn't he? And is kind. Joseph was kind to these gentlemen. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things. It says believes all things. It believes all of God's word, hopes all things, endures all things. Once again, these This passage is familiar to us, but Joseph is a living example of how these words can be real in a person's life, in real-life circumstances and situations. And again, the things that Joseph suffered, most of us, what we suffer doesn't even compare to the trials that Joseph had, the injustices that he suffered. Oh, yeah, we've all suffered injustice at some point and some degree. We've all had trials and sorrows and losses. 
But when you think of all that Joseph went through, and yet he he continues to show himself one who has a heart of love, a heart after God's own heart. Jesus, of course, is the supreme example of what it means to be concerned about someone else's need in your time of suffering. Let's go to John 19, and verses 26 and 27. Jesus is on the cross at this point. He is suffering torture, physical torture. Yes, he's the Son of God. Yes, death could not hold him. But do not think for a moment that as a man, he didn't feel the torture of the cross. He's in extreme, excruciating pain, just trying to breathe. And yet, what do we see him focused on? When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her in to his own home. He was concerned about his mother's physical care, her well-being. On the cross, dying for the sins of the world, he said, John, take care of my mother. Luke chapter 23, Luke 23 and verse 33 and 34, Luke 23, 33 and 34. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. This is the extreme example of love in the midst of your own suffering. The very soldiers that were nailing him to the cross, he he wasn't cursing them. He wasn't yelling at them didn't ask his father to slay them. He said, don't hold this against them. If they have the opportunity to come to know know me, may this sin that they're doing, may it not be the impardonable sin, though they crucified the Lord of glory. Father, forgive them as they drove the nails in his hand. Verses 42 and 43 of Luke 23. Luke 23, 42 and 43. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me. This is the thief on the cross. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. We are never more Christ-like than we, when we love others in the time of our own suffering. When we are concerned about the needs of others. Joseph saw just the look on their face and said, why are you sad? He was genuinely interested and was offering to help and and did help. He gave them the interpretation. When we're able to do that, it's the Christ in us. And we see that selflessness on the cross, not only for all of humanity, but for these individuals, his mother and the thief on the cross, the soldiers that were nailing him to the cross. The next lesson that we can learn from Joseph's attitude and actions in this chapter, is that we must always point others to God to find the answer they need for life. In verse 8 of Genesis 40 that we read there, Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? He pointed them to God. God's the answer that you're looking for. Now Joseph was going to be the instrument that God was going to use in this case, but he pointed them to, to God. And so to me, 
Joseph's statement here is, is proof that he hadn't given up on God's revelation to him. He had every opportunity to be bitter. God said, I was going to rule and sit on a throne, and I've been sold as a slave. I've been a slave in Potiphar's house. I was treated unjustly and lied about, and now I'm in prison. God doesn't seem to be honoring his word in my life. But no, he says God has the answer that you need. He knew that God was still his answer. And so that's another thing that we need to do is always point others to the fountain of wisdom and knowledge. Let's go to Proverbs 2 and read verses 1 through 12. With our life and with our words, we need to show people, and when we have opportunity, tell people that God has the wisdom you need for life, and he's the only source of it. So in Proverbs chapter 2 and verses 1 through 12, My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, notice there's, a, there's an effort being made here, there's an intensity that needs to be in our seeking the will of God and the direction of God in our life. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, value this wisdom that's found in, in the word of God and in the will of God. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. When we understand the will of God as revealed in the word of God and we let that wisdom and that knowledge direct our every decision, it's a protection for us. A life of faith and obedience to the Word of God is the best possible life a human can live on this planet because it comes from our Creator. He knows what we need. He created us. He knows what's going to lead to joy and peace, contentment in this world. Verse 7, He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity and every good path. When wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, discretion will preserve you. Understanding will keep you. Instead of despising the word of God, like the world certainly does, but even many of God's people despise God's instruction for every relationship, every area of their life. But when we find the knowledge of God's word his will revealed to us, when we find it to be something pleasant, then it becomes, again, a protection for us. Discretion will preserve you. Understanding will keep you to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things. I think we'll close there tonight.